Hey everyone, welcome to Leadership. I'm Caleb Gardner. And I'm Adrielle Parker. This is the beginning of a conversation about the social responsibility of business and how leaders need to react to a constantly changing world. And I'm very excited to be having this conversation with my good friend, Adrielle Parker, on an ongoing basis because Adrielle is someone that I've worked with for a long time, who I respect her work and her opinion. Um, and she and I cover different parts of this conversation about leadership. You know, with my work at 18 Coffees, my consulting firm, we really focus more on strategy and change management. Um, but Adrielle's work in DEI and and her background in tech consulting really complement that. I'll let you give a little bit more about, about your background, but I just want to say that one of the reasons why I'm excited about this conversation is I don't feel like there is a lot of, um, you know, people really leaning into how hard it is right now to be a socially responsible leader, right? Like we kind of, we kind of do this thing where we're just like, do better, do better. And we, we, it's really easy to kind of lob bombs from the outside (laughs) and we should, you know, we need to hold leaders accountable, but it's also like, I want to acknowledge this is really hard to do. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, as we sort of, shift or we're not even shifting we're already in a very much digital first world and it seems that folks are forgetting that we also have to be people first Um, they have to sort of run in tandem and I think that is one of the really unique things about us doing this collaboration like you mentioned you know you're really thinking more about the change management piece I think about change management from the diversity equity inclusion side but my focus is really on strategy and prioritizing people. And so I think we have a really unique lens to leverage as we explore some some various topics as it relates to business, our world, ethics, and social change. Yeah. Plus, you're just one of my favorite people, let's be honest. And, I mean. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a, Own it. It's fine. Own it. Um, I, I mean, have you – like, I think one of the – again – one of the frustrations that I found just being in this space and creating a firm that's trying to lean into changing uh, organizations to be more socially responsible is there aren't a lot of good resources out there to tell people how to do this, right? Yeah. yeah. There aren't, like, there's just, there's HBR article after HBR article. Yes. There's, you know, business news publications. There's TED Talks, whatever. And everyone... I think agrees on it is possible to be a socially responsible business and a profit driven business. One that is, Mm -hmm. you know, like helping both your people, your employees, your communities and your shareholders, which is kind of the traditional focus of business. But I just, I I think what's frustrating to me is like these conversations are much more nuanced than we give them credit for. Right. Like they're much more, they're much harder to do in practice than they are in theory. And so we put out all of these really big kind of, you know, statements and declarations and goal settings, but we don't actually mm-hmm. address the, oh, wow. Yeah. This is, this, this is going to be like turning the Titanic. Like this is very hard for <laughs> our hundred year old bureaucratic corporation publicly traded to actually do like, there's just, anyway, that's, yeah. That's my mini rant for, uh, I think, why we're starting leadership and why we're calling it this. Like, I think that one of the reasons why you and I both 
gravitated towards this name is for that exact reason. Like most of the leadership advice doesn't take into account any of this. It all like kind of boils it down and reduces it to these like management theories and actually like this shit is hard. Yes. Extremely. Extremely what hard. Do you, tell tell me about like what do you uh, uh what's been out there that you have been listening to that you're kind of taking inspiration from that you'd want to bring to you know this conversation with me every week um i think linkedin has actually been a really great source for a number of reasons being able to hear so many different perspectives as it relates to work and business and social change and diversity, equity, and inclusion is really, you know, helpful just to see um, the HBR articles that you mentioned are, I think, helpful as well. <laughs> Although there are just so many of them every day. So it's like, many. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's And, you know, one of the things that I get frustrated with is something you highlighted is that we're talking about all of these things in theory, but there's not really any move to action. We don't really see it in practice. And I think that's one of the things a lot of leaders and organizations are struggling with is there haven't been any examples of this work being done. So it's like, we don't know what to do. How do we start? Um, and yeah. I think, you know, there are very few leaders and organizations who are stepping up and saying, hey, we're going to be the innovators. We are going to throw this at the wall, see if the shit sticks. And then hopefully role model and iterate for other, you know, leaders and organizations to come. But we have yet to really see that. And of course, now we're going through, I think we we previously kind of referred to it as the great reshuffling where there are all of these layoffs, but people are also hiring. Um, and so I don't know. I don't know if it, it kind of distracts from us wanting to see more change and more practicality around all these theoretical concepts and ideas but i don't know how soon we're gonna we're gonna see that happen um there have also been significant layoffs as it relates to dei and social change roles and so without those experts and you know those professionals within an organization it's definitely going to stifle the process of social change yeah it's um really interesting to be starting this while we are going through this kind of contraction in certain sectors and this uh yeah. you know, massive rounds of layoffs including in dei including in tech including in you know some things that were i think just a few years ago seen as pretty pretty safe places to lean into in terms of your oh, career yeah. um so that those will be things that we'll be talking about but just i i think a good way to end this section is one more rant about hbr we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna pick on hbr every single week but i think that HBR to me is kind of like the high class Forbes. Like Forbes yes. has become this like kind of pay for play place where like people who want to be thought leaders will create content and lean in. And HBR is just a higher class version for that. I don't have any any problems with people who work there, <laughs> work at, you know, Harvard Business School, or whatever. Yeah. But knowing what I know about how you get placed there and who gets placed there, I feel like that's why the content there is a little all over the place in terms of quality, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. The stuff that we're talking about, like the the ethical responsibility and the social responsibility of business is like a sexy topic, but the how stuff and like how do you actually do this isn't that sexy. And 
that's why I think you don't really see it on all of these like case study or like how to guides that you see in HBR or Forbes or any of the others. And so I just I hope that we get a chance to lean into why what makes this so messy. What makes this a shit show? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we're going to every week be bringing you things that we've seen in the news that we want to dive a little bit deeper on. I'll bring a topic. Adria will bring a topic and we will discuss. And like I said, get into kind of the messiness of why leaders have a hard time with these particular things. And so every week we're going to do that. Um, I have brought something very interesting this week on the uh, uh, <laughs> the metaverse, a whole big topic we can talk about a lot, and how it is all, there's already a gender gap, according to the next web, being created in the metaverse. What did you bring this week, Adriel? I am leaning into my area of expertise, and I want to talk about how we are seeing a stall um, as it relates to chief diversity officer roles across various organizations and industries. Um, you know, there was a significant surge in 2020, and that has since slowed down. So I want to do a bit of a deep dive on that. Oof. Oof. All right. All right. Let's do it. Let's get into it. All right, why don't we start with um, the metaverse conversation this week? Because I feel like your chief diversity officer role is so rich, and I probably will want to talk about that for so long. But like, let's yes. just very quickly dive into the metaverse. Um, I feel like for those of you uninitiated in what the metaverse is, um, which is 98% of society probably, um, you probably heard this <laughs> term thrown around and not really understood like it sounds like this weird futuristic thing and especially if you're a business leader who isn't plugged into tech you might be afraid of it a little bit let's be honest like oh my god is this another thing i have to be paying attention to and, and the short answer is yes eventually but probably not right now that would be my mm -hmm. guess adriel you might have a, a a different perspective on that but i feel like the metaverse is still this esoteric thing a little bit it's kind of being wrapped into the Web3 conversation, but not really. It's kind of running yeah. parallel to it. And part of the reason why it's running parallel to it is it's really being driven mostly by one company, which is Meta, who has leaned very heavily into um, the metaverse as the future of the internet. And there's other companies that have their metaverse strategies, don't get me wrong, but none of them have rebranded their entire company <laughs> to, to say that they are going in this direction. What's interesting about the metaverse is, depending on who you ask in terms of its definition, it has a virtual reality component, it has an augmented reality component. You get these images, including on this next web article, of people with their virtual reality headsets and, you know, they're right, kind of engaged right. in what looks like, you know, a game. And a lot of the uh, most initial, I think, developments in the metaverse have come from the gaming world, which, which is very interesting. But basically, the metaverse can be thought of as a combination between virtual worlds that we are going to go to for certain experiences, including in the workplace, but not exclusively in the workplace, and 
augmented things that we can use to, you know, get more information and more interaction with our everyday lives. That's the vision, at least, is that those two things will be connected and be, um, you know, seamless in terms of our our connected experience instead of just carrying around screens and looking at screens. Obviously, the yeah. technology has to catch up. The infrastructure has to catch up our our you know, both our you know, internet speeds and our hardware and all of that. But that's what, you know, companies like Meta are leaning into. The problem that this article, you know, calls out is that when we start to build new worlds on top of existing worlds that are already broken, <laughs> uh, the problems of the existing world get plugged into the new world. And one of yep. those is that there are a lot of people working on the metaverse who are men and a lot fewer who are women. And so much like how the internet itself became a reflection of <laughs> how our society was broken because we didn't necessarily put in those safety guardrails, what may be happening with the metaverse is that we are taking the same kind of patriarchal, you know, hierarchies that exist in the real world and starting to apply them to the metaverse in terms of how metaverse companies are getting funded, in terms of who's working on it. And so I think that what's interesting to me about this is that this this article focuses on the gender gap in particular, but I think that you could probably say the same thing about the diversity of who's working on the metaverse. Um, you know, all again, all of the reflections of the things that we have tried to create in real life in terms of inclusion and safeguards on marginalized communities and things like how we've thought about accessibility in real life. Like these are things that tend to be afterthoughts when we build digital experiences. We go for the the biggest audiences first and then we build in all the like things for all the other quote, quote, quote unquote other people. Right. Yeah, definitely. What about the? I mean, does this surprise you? This it can't surprise you. You're like nodding along the whole time. This no, <laughs> not you. at all. Not at all. So I think um, one thing I'll say is I have gone down endless rabbit holes on the metaverse to try to wrap my head around it. And one thing that finally helped me help things sort of click, um, and hopefully this will help you and other other listeners, is the acronym, I think it's pronounced BIGANT. So understanding that the metaverse is, is actually comprised of six different technologies. So BIGANT stands for blockchain, interactive gaming, which you mentioned, artificial intelligence, and then um, the NT is network and... Uh, <laughs> the internet of things so the interwebs <laughs> which is where i love to spend my time going down rabbit holes but that's not the point right I but love knowing that that are like everything yes but, it's but like yes, that is super helpful yeah it's like a uh, fang right facebook i will announce mang meta apple amazon netflix google anyhow um you know, looking at sort of the demographics that we've seen across tech and even just taking even a, a an additional step back to look at STEM, historically, those roles and leaders in those roles are white men. Um, and that has not changed. And so all we're doing is, to your point, creating this now virtual space that has 
literally been created and set up and designed by that majority group. And when you don't have diverse perspectives, and when I say diverse, I'm not just talking about race and gender, but even, you know, thinking about accessibility, you know, the internet should be accessible for people. Um, Or, you know, thinking about socioeconomic differences. One of the things that I discovered as part of the metaverse is that there is a huge um, housing and real estate market that is expected to reach over $5 billion by 2026. So there are all of these different things that are being driven by a majority population that just like our real world have not been, um, you know, designed for a diverse mix of people uh, from different backgrounds. And so that's a problem. And because it's this virtual world, we don't have the checks and balances, not that they're necessarily doing that much in our real world, but (laughs) we don't have anything really. There's no one really checking to say, hey, that's not right in this virtual space, at least not yet. I'm sorry, you gotta go back. There is now a housing crisis being developed in the, yes. in the metaverse. Yes, and we what haven't are, even like, solved the real world. Exactly. <laughs> Let's exactly. start there. What are what are we buying virtual houses? We don't even have enough housing to like house actual people. But I don't I don't understand. Yeah. I guess I don't understand enough about how the metaverse works to understand why someone would want to buy real estate in it. Like is, well, it, you're, is it digital real estate like the equivalent of a url or is it like somebody is building virtual houses and then i'm going into the metaverse and purchasing it do you know yes i think it's both but i'm no expert but from what i've seen you know i kind of think of the metaverse almost like uh, a new age version of the sims where you create this virtual character of yourself you can buy clothes i mean we see we're seeing big name brands like balenciaga um, you know, sell items like as if they're real items in the metaverse, right? Right. You can buy houses, you can build houses, you can purchase a virtual office space and use it to run meetings with your teams, with your actual teams from the real world. So it gets a little confusing, but yes, it, it to me is like a Sims world, um, but with real money involved and real people involved. What? So like, yeah, I've seen, I've seen many stories about brands leaning in and developing mm-hmm. virtual items as well is the is the housing crisis itself about there's not enough new development in the metaverse in terms of i guess the equivalent i would think of is like bandwidth or server space maybe is a better way to think about it based well, I don't on think like how many people want to buy it versus how much space there actually is Yeah, so I don't think there's a housing crisis yet in the metaverse. Ah, I think we're just seeing a boom in real estate um, and it's quickly expanding. But I think the same, you know, inequalities that we see with the housing market in our real world are likely going to be imposed on the metaverse. I, I, I can't, you know, again, if we don't have anyone checking and regulating things, ensuring that it's equitable and fair, it's likely to happen, right? Right, right. So how do we prevent that? Like, it just, again, in terms of giving leaders advice, this is something I've thought about a lot. It's like, we go to build these digital experiences, metaverse or not, but we could think about leaning into metaverse, Web3, kind of all these, the future of digital products, let's just say. How do you, how do you prevent the same inequities that are endemic to our current society from being then translated into these digital experiences? Yeah. Um, 
well, <laughs> we should probably start with figuring <laughs> out how to do it in the that. real world, right? Solve that like, for us, Adriel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it, you know, at the end of the day, change is only going to happen if leaders want it to happen and if they decide to make it happen. Leaders are setting the tone. People with power and privilege are setting the tone for our society, for our organizations, for now the metaverse. So if those folks collectively don't make a decision to be proactive, um, I don't know that there's much we can do. I think, yes, we can make small efforts, which we do in our everyday lives, but yeah, here well, we how, are. What, what do those <laughs> efforts look like? So retraining your staff, maybe like looking through product development workflows and building in some guardrails, um, yeah. prioritizing things like accessibility and inclusion and yeah. equity into the product development process so you're you're proactively thinking about those things before they go to market maybe Absolutely. like reversing a little bit there's been this this you know minimum viable product conversation when mm -hmm. it comes to developing and releasing digital products maybe part of what we consider minimum has to change yeah right like yeah. right now i think Minimum means the the most viable for the majority of people. Well, the majority yes. of people's experiences actually doesn't take into account, you know, what the what the experience of people with accessibility needs are, for example. Right. So we 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 need to expand what we consider a minimum viable product, maybe. Absolutely. You know, to your point, there's always this idea of just go hard, create the thing. Let's get it out there and we'll revisit it later to consider, you know, using your example, how we can make it more accessible. And then it, you know, oftentimes people don't revisit and they just keep pushing forward with the existing product um, or they do revisit and it's this add on thing. And it's very clear that it's been an add on and an afterthought. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, not only makes the product so that more people can actually use it, but it makes those people feel like, well, hell, like, do you even give a crap about me? Right? Like, why, why did you even bother making this second or third or fourth iteration that right. you kind of half-assed, quite frankly? That's been exactly my experience is like, it either gets added on later and not yeah. fully integrated or not well thought out or never yeah. added on at all. Yeah. Like it's never yeah. revisited. It's put in a parking lot and the car's never driven, I guess. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of instances, it's a miracle if someone even calls it out, right? Because yeah. again, going back to the team that created the product, they're not even diverse enough to have that sort of foresight to be like, oh my goodness, well, actually we should consider this because they're almost, you know, almost always building a product for themselves and not really thinking beyond that. And even if you try to think beyond your own beliefs or needs or whatever else, there's still a, a, a block there. You need additional perspectives outside yeah. of your own. Which, so. which get, brings us into the extra labor that we usually add to marginalized communities to like yes. speak for the entire community as part of yes. these teams. But that's for another day. Actually, that might be a good segue <laughs> into uh, your conversation about chief diversity officers. Yeah. Whew. Uh, hot topic. <laughs> well, I think I'll preface this by saying that, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier about the layoffs, we have seen and historically we've seen 
DEI roles, folks always say DEI roles are the first to go or people related roles are the first to go, which is really unfortunate considering on average DEI teams are already pretty small, if not just one or two people. Um, but you know, 2020 there, we, we witnessed the unfortunate murder of George Floyd and that sparked all of this I'm using air quotes right now, outrage. And people started doing all of this performative DEI work. We saw DEI statements being thrown up on websites. People were throwing in like a token black person in their advertisements, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, all that good stuff. Slowly but surely that started to sort of go away and fade away. And then over the past few months with these layoffs, there's actually been a significant decrease. Um, so it hasn't been a trickle, but just like a straight up, we kind of just fell off a cliff Ugh. and we're forgetting about that DEI stuff. We don't have the money for it. We don't have the resources. We don't have the bandwidth. And so along with that has come the fact that um, there are fewer organizations hiring chief diversity officers. Um, the CDO role, prior to this issue was already a struggle. Um, a lot of people don't stay in a CDO role for very long for a variety of reasons. Um, yeah. One of the main reasons to really highlight is the fact that they are often not considered part of the leadership team. They're given this chief diversity officer title, but they're usually treated like VPs or less than. And so when it comes to real decision making, they don't really have a say. Um, they're often dealing with a lot of bureau bureaucracy, a lot of silos. Um, they are constantly being turned down whenever they, you know, suggest real, real implementation of a DEI strategy or any efforts that go beyond just the performative sort of low hanging fruit efforts. Um, and so that's what we're dealing with now. Um, it, we could talk I mean, about this for a very long time, but oh, absolutely. I mean, talk about a role that is a meant to be a change leader, but not right. given the tools or empowerment to make right. change in in so yes. many instances. It it kind of reminds me of any. There's been a lot of roles like this. I feel like developed over the last probably like twenty years, where it's like mm -hmm. chief, sexy thing officer. Mm -hmm, right. Like mm -hmm. chief thing that's in the news officer where we're going to say, like, this is something we care about. We're going to put someone in this leadership role. And yep. that person is really meant to be some combination of a center of excellence, like hold all the knowledge about that topic and somehow right. bring the entire organization along with mm -hmm. their vision. And yep. they're often not given the right tools or resources. And by resources, I mean budgets and people to be yes. able to make that change happen. Um, Absolutely. There's a lot of chief digital officers, for example, out there w mm -hmm. stuck in this role trying to make technological change. But it's not as urgent as I think the chief diversity officer, which is trying sure. to do that change work on a super emotional and sensitive and, like you said, people driven topic. Yes, absolutely. And there's a lot of pressure if you take on a, a CDO role. And yeah. whenever you misstep or if something doesn't, um, if outcomes aren't as expected, then folks are automatically sort of looking at you like, well, told you this DEI thing doesn't work. This is a waste of money. Yeah, And, and yet so we throw to tons of money at all these other business initiatives oh, and verticals. God. Like it's nothing. And people fail all day, every day. It's, it blows my mind. <laughs> well, it, it, 
I've seen chief diversity officers and really anyone who works in DEI, it's mm-hmm. so easy to get stuck in this like pot stir role. <sighs> yes. Where people yes. think that you are only there to constantly point out how bad they're doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which right. you kind of are, but like that's what you were hired to do, right? Like right. So you get you get to be you get labeled as this rabble rouser, you know, person mm-hmm. who, you know, is creating risk for the leadership as opposed to you know pointing out like where there are risk areas in the future like you're supposed to be in this kind of future protecting role and instead you get labeled as someone who is creating more risk if that makes poking the bear yes absolutely um and then you know there is also that that aspect of people who are doing this work very well and they are poking the bear, but also saying, hey, and here are some potential solutions or things we can try. But people just don't want to make the effort. They don't see the importance. They insert whatever reason, just don't want to support those DEI efforts. And then again, that person that that's in the CDO role is left trying to pretend like they have a thousand arms and, um, you know, trying to do all the things. And then um, another really common problem with the chief diversity officer role is that people get burnt out really quickly. And so that is why retention is so poor when it comes to CDO roles. Yeah, Um, you're asking them to do all this emotional labor on top of, you know, all the things a normal kind of transformation officer would have to do. Right. And if you belong to a historically marginalized identity, there's another layer that you're dealing with right in and of itself. So, yeah, it, it's it's really tough. Um, I myself have not even considered ever taking on a CDO role. It would <laughs> have to been, be a You real. have to have been offered them before, right? I've like, been approached by recruiters, but it, it, it would have to be like a CDO of Metaverse or something like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah yeah, well there you go there all the recruiters out there if you're looking to get uh, in front of adriel that's what it's gonna take there you go (laughs) that's what it's gonna take absolutely so what did change just to like wrap this up because i think your point about george floyd is a really interesting one because i saw too so much activity and so much change happening george Mm -hmm. the the catalyst of george floyd was the first time that i felt like companies were looking beyond just the oh we'll give money to the NAACP or we'll like sure. like they took they they a lot of them took that like corporate philanthropy route but then i think they listened to feedback about that's not enough mm-hmm. like, we need to be mm-hmm. self reflective about who's on our board we need to be self reflective about how our products are harming or supporting communities of color yeah. we need to you know we need to look inside at how we are treating black people within our organization and a lot of those conversations were super interesting and fruitful right after george floyd and you're right that it has waned are we in just a typical business cycle where the kind of hype around it is dying and it's going to come back or do you see this as a more you know systemic problem it (laughs) i think it is a more systemic problem it's really interesting right um, when the murder of George Floyd happened, many of us were at home and we had a lot of time on our hands. And I think it was the first time that people were really sitting down and witnessing something happening in real time to a human. And there was a lot of empathy around that. 
And that also led to a lot more, you know, advocacy groups surfacing, a lot of protests, a lot of people making call to actions. And it was almost like the call to action Olympics. Let me one up you with what I'm going to do over here at my company, right? We're going to do this thing. Oh, you're doing that? Cool. Let's do this, right? Lots of press Um, Yes, so many, so many. Um, And, you know, the problem, one of the problems, one of many problems is that a lot of these organizations had never really explored anything within the the realm of DEI besides, you know, perhaps celebrating cultural heritage months or allowing employees to create create affinity groups or employee resource groups. But really digging into um, DEI strategy, thinking about things like how are our systems and processes affecting people and not just things like recruiting, but in terms of how people are promoted, how we are assigning roles and tasks and projects, how we are um, allotting bonuses, right? People haven't really thought about that and how it impacts other folks, right? And that's really the equity and inclusion piece. And if you're not leaning into equity and inclusion and really trying to create a truly equitable and inclusive workplace, the diversity piece is pretty much bullshit, quite frankly, because you can keep bringing in diverse groups yep. of people, but if the the systems and the the work environment isn't designed for them, you're not going to be able to retain them. Um, And so I think we, people were like, oh, wait, there's actually a lot more to this other than us pushing out this new mission statement or this campaign. Um, And then we've kind of gone into this cycle where our workforce is just sort of all over the place. There have been layoffs, there's been reshuffling. And so, um, and you know, we talked about this a bit there, we're, we're not sure, but maybe there's a recession approaching. Uh, hard to say. <laughs> Who knows? Um, Who knows? Right. But all of these things, and then we've had a lot of other political things, have caused sort of distraction from DEI. And people have, as we've seen historically, sort of deprioritized their DEI mm-hmm. work um, to focus more on, okay, we've got to make sure our revenue keeps going. We've got to get our investors. And so without having already explored how to integrate DEI into all aspects of, of their work and their leadership, here we are. Um, and yeah. so it, this is nothing new. We've seen it time and time again. I do think, however, though, that a lot of organizations and leaders are going to regret not having uh, continued to lean into DEI as the workforce shifts, as we're seeing these weird sort of dynamics pop up with hybrid work and forcing people to go back into office and things like that. Um, You know, LinkedIn did a survey recently and one of the top skills that people need this year are management, people management skills. And that is directly tied to inclusive leadership, which is directly tied into DEI. Um, And so, yes. There's a lot of short-term thinking happening right now. Yes, I feel like a lot of the layoffs are very short-term thinking, like trying to make Wall Street happy or whatever. And there's going to be yeah. a lot of investments that I, I agree. There's going to be a lot of investments companies wish they would have been making now that mm-hmm. would have paid off when, let's be honest, the next George Floyd happens. I mean, hopefully it won't be as much of a tragedy or whatever, but there's going to be right. another moment where this becomes central to the conversation. And I think right. companies that maintained an investment in changing their organization to be more inclusive are going to be rewarded when that moment comes and ones yep. that deprioritized it are going to be in the spotlight again in in unflattering ways. Absolutely. So to wrap this yeah. up, like if you were a the leader of an organization or in the mm-hmm. C-suite of an organization and that organization is hired a chief diversity officer or really any DI focused role, 
what should they do to support that, you know, work stream like that, especially that person, but also just the work of DEI, you know, what, what best practices have you seen where a chief diversity officer can come in and actually be supported by the organization? Yeah. Um, make sure that that chief diversity officer is considered one of your leaders, have them involved in business decisions. The, the two are not designed to be separate. DEI should be integrated into all that you're doing. And so they should be present for a number of decisions. And if you hired them to be a CDO, that means they're probably pretty good at what they do. And you should be willing to actually listen to their advice and consider implementing things. So that's my biggest piece of advice. Um, don't just push your CDO into or onto your HR team. They are not one in the same. Uh, chief diversity officer role is a strategic role um, that is a business imperative. It is not just a human resources um, uh, yeah. role or, or sort of line of work. Not just a not just a people leader, a business leader. Yes, Love absolutely. That perspective. Love yes. that perspective. Yes. So to end our leadership podcast, Adriel and I are going to pick one more thing from our weeks that we want to highlight. And we are giving ourselves creative license to pick what that one thing is. And so I'm very interested yeah. to hear what you're bringing to the table this week, Adriel. But yes. my one more thing, this is this is a pretty random one, but it's it's stemming from conversations that I've had recently um, with mm -hmm. several different people wanting to get into business consulting or leadership coaching who have basically asked me, <laughs> this is actually related to our chief diversity officer conversation, where do you draw the line between helping someone with emotional work? Oof versus helping them with leadership or business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the I think what's really hard about making this distinction is a lot of the work when you start talking about trying to coach a 60-year-old CEO who's a white man how to deal with generational shifts with people coming into his organization from Gen Z, how to deal with gender diversity on his board, with racial diversity on his board, like sure. you are talking not only about leadership skills and understanding, mm -hmm. you know, just how to be inclusive, but oftentimes you are also dealing with these inherently broken biases and uh, cultural assumptions and sometimes shit they've brought in from their own childhood. Let's be oh, honest. Yeah. yeah. Like absolutely. not all of this can be solved outside of therapy. And that's kind of yeah. what I wanted to bring into this. And maybe it's just a recommendation out there for any leaders <laughs> who have not explored your own shit. Like I would highly recommend it for anyone. I am very pro therapy. I will talk about it with, with uh, anyone who asks. Same. Been in and out Absolutely. of it for many years. Have lots of friends, have lots of family members who've been in and out of it. It is so helpful to just, just understand your own emotions and where you're triggered and where that stuff comes from and, it yeah. just helps you be a more emotionally intelligent leader. And so that's my my quick just nod to therapy for leaders. <laughs> Maybe that's a good good one more thing for our first podcast is if you have not already explored that and you are the leader of people in an organization, I highly, highly recommend it. Absolutely. All right. What What's your one more thing this week, Adriel? 
Um, I'm going with something a little less serious, um, especially considering I went on a bit of a rant today about (laughs) chief diversity officers, and I can honestly go on for hours about that. But um, I recently saw the new Ant-Man, Quantumania, and um, I don't know. What's What's your take? What's your take? I saw it this weekend, too. So. It was it was good, um, and uh, Jonathan Majors swoon. Oh my however, god, he was so good. Yes, so good. so so good, incredible. Um, <laughs> however, I just feel as if Marvel is putting out so much content that it's not as as high quality as I would want it to be. So because they're splitting content between Disney Plus programming now and theatrical programming you're feeling like it's all getting watered down it just feels yeah it feels a little too watered down like i was sitting in the theater just waiting like okay this is going to be the moment when i'm like oh my gosh at the edge of my seat and it just didn't happen it didn't happen did that happen for you maybe it happened for you i don't think it did i mean i similar to you without you know giving too many spoilers i thought it was entertaining yes i also thought it was kind of like all right. Yeah. You know, like, and I also cool. thought they tried to, I mean, this is classic Marvel, like condense something that really could have been three movies into one. And then exactly. like it made the stakes like so much smaller because it felt right. like we know they're going to overcome all of this craziness in one movie. I do feel like the, some of the Disney plus programming I've really enjoyed. Like I really liked mm-hmm. Loki. I should, I should preface this with, I'm, I'm a pretty big Marvel fanboy. I always yeah. have been. Yeah, but I do feel like, to your point, the the trying to run in so many different directions across so much more so much programming and keeping mm-hmm. it all integrated. It's not just doing so much programming. It's like yeah. it's all got to be integrated. This conceit exactly. that they have about the cinematic universe is getting super complicated and hard to hard to weave together. And Absolutely. so, of course, in these phases, you got to go like across time and across, you know different multiverses and this you've had to like go in so many different directions to keep it all integrated and still entertaining yes um that it's definitely been hit or miss for me same yeah um i will say that i was a little more excited with the post credit (laughs) than anything else (laughs) post credits were good stay for the post credits yeah definitely stay for the post credits um but yeah i agree i think there is a little bit of watering down that's happening i think there are just so many different storylines and they're perhaps just struggling to keep them all together also a fan of loki we'll have to talk about that some other time although i'm behind um yeah but yeah that was that was my work Yes, yes, I heard. So I got to catch up and embrace myself. Although, huge fan of binge watching. So I might just wait. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. You know. Okay, last yeah. note I've got to ask you about because we didn't get a chance to talk about it before. Sure. Wakanda Forever. Yes. Hit or miss. Like it? Um, I loved it. I mean, it was just, for lack of better words, a black ass movie and I loved it. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it was great. I, you know, I thought the story was amazing. The actors were fantastic. Um, I loved the costuming. Oh my goodness, was incredible. So, so yeah, amazing. So, so um, yeah, and I've seen it a couple of times. I'll probably watch it again soon, but enjoyed it a lot more than Ant-Man. That's Well, for that's sure. why I asked, because that was yeah. the last one that came out right before Ant-Man. Yeah. And I felt like yeah. it was so good. That yeah. How could Ant Man compete? But I guess that's also right. why they like created so much space in between them. 
Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, that is uh, one more thing. Thanks so much for that. And um, thank you all for listening to our first ever leadership. And we will be back weekly talking about the messy intersection of business and social impact. Um, thanks so much, Adriel. This has been fun. As always, can't wait till next week. Thanks for listening to Leadership. Our producer is Dave Sandell. Think about starting your own podcast? Connect with him at davesandell.com. You can find more about Adriel and her diversity, equity, and inclusion work at adrielparker.com. You can also subscribe to her YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Parker for more candid discussions on DEI and for more insight on inclusive leadership. You can find more information about me, Caleb Gardner, and my work and hire me to speak on change leadership at calebgardner.com or 18coffees.com. And you can find my book, No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected Radically Conscious Economy, wherever books are sold. 